Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Hello and welcome back, bookends, to another episode in our debut Spotlight series, where we shine a light on the freshest authors and their work. Today we shine a spotlight on the beautiful debut novel, The Collected Regrets of Clover. Clover dedicates her life to ushering people peacefully through their end-of-life process as a death doula in New York City, a job that she loves and inspires her to record her client's last words. Yet there is something missing from Clover's life as she asks the question, when we all know we are going to die, how do we make sure we truly live? Mickey Brammer is an Australian writer based in New York City. She spent her childhood in Tasmania before living in several different parts of Australia, France and Spain. Mickey started her career in journalism, interviewing the likes of William Dafoe and Jane Birkin for an Australian pop culture magazine. She then moved to Paris to work as a writer and photographer, and she also penned the regular column My Life in Paris for the British magazine France Today. Mickey now lives in New York, where she has now spent several years writing about design, architecture and art for publications including Architectural Digest, Lonely Planet and Dwell, amongst others. The Collected Regrets of Clover is her debut novel, which is out on the 6th of July and has already been sold into 25 territories. Mickey, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. No, thank you for coming on. We desperately need to know, what are you currently reading? Yeah, I am currently reading, well, I do tend to read several books at once, um, but the one that I'm I'm reading today is Real Life by Brandon Taylor. Very nice. And his new book uh, just came out recently, I think in the UK, The Late Americans, and that's on my list as well. So good. I've not read Real Life, but we were very fortunate to have Brandon on the podcast. So we're um, releasing the episode with him on Friday, so I can't actually say this. Oh. <laughs> yeah, um, And he's so interesting. He's so interesting and yeah. his writing is just beautiful. And I just I just love him. I really love him. And <laughs> yeah. get into, I've been listening to the podcast back whilst I've been editing and yeah. he's just like his mind. I can't even. It's so impressive. And he's so thoughtful and just but funny. He's just the whole package. Yeah, the whole package. He's so good. It kind of makes you hate him a little bit because you have to, (laughs) just because he's blackbird. Just saying. I'm just. I told him myself. Yeah, (laughs) I love him. No, but he was going to give up writing and go into photography um, Mm. before he wrote the late Americans, which just. I can't even comprehend, you know, what is a literary world without Brandon Taylor in it. No, thank you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> what? He can do both. I think he is quite a talented photographer. So, yeah. He's so There's talented. room for both in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and you just said that you can read several books at the same time. So is that like a combination of fiction and nonfiction? Or are you like an enigma and you can read multiple fiction books at the same time? And I, I Usually it is fiction and nonfiction because I feel like they use different parts of the brain and I'm yeah, a very right. curious person and so the um the non-fiction is is more of like a learning and interest curiosity thing and then the fiction is more you know the opportunity to see the world through someone else's eyes or occupy someone else's mind occasionally I do read several fiction books at once just because you know I'm often in different moods so I might have one on my kindle and then be reading one in person uh or sometimes I have a subway book as well and that is determined how big the book is so I, I only read like smaller or paperback on the subway otherwise it takes too much room in my bag um, 
But the thing about I'm very careful with subway reads, as I call them, because I feel like it's such a disjointed experience. And so you're really, you know, you'll stop every time the train stops or every time you have to move. And I began to realize that a few books I'd read on the subway I didn't enjoy. And I was like, wait, did I not enjoy them? Or was it because I kept getting pulled out of it? And so I couldn't really get into it. So I do try to be careful with that. I totally get that. I always hate when I'm in my own little world on the train and then somebody will come on and sit next to me and it's like a whole a whole thing. You know, if they've got like loads of bags or you need to like move about, like, <laughs> I know you take them out. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to be left alone in my little world. Are you kind of like nosy when you're on the subway watch, looking at what other people are reading? Oh, always. I've read over people's shoulders, which I know is so annoying. <laughs> And people would, I I would be annoyed if someone did that to me. But actually I was in London once and on the tube and someone was reading a book and, you know, was so tightly packed in that I kind of was reading it. And then by the end of the trip, I was like, wow, that sounds like a great book. I've never heard of it. It was The Night Circus by Erin Morgenstern. Oh, wow. And then I went and bought it at the station, at Fanny Station. <laughs> I love that. When I got up and, and it was a great book. So, um. It is really interesting. I've noticed um, recently in New York that the ratio, at least in Brooklyn, the ratio of people on phones to reading books is actually, thankfully, there's sometimes more people reading books than on phones, which really surprised me, but gives me hope for the world. Absolutely. And I I won't be caught dead without a book, let me tell you. Live. Same. Everywhere. Literally everywhere. And I mean, even in appropriate places, I will bring a book just in case. Just in case. You never know. You never know when you're going to have 10 minutes to squeeze another <laughs> chapter in. Lydia has been known to carry a book in a bag to a funeral. I don't know when yeah. she was thinking about whipping that out. but Literally, the other, the other week, the other week, <laughs> just in case. Because you never know. There might be a lull. A lull. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I'm sorry, but funerals are notorious for lulls. Listen, yeah, yeah. it's true. Yeah. Hey, there's a lot of waiting. That hey? is true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I want to get into your incredible book. But first, we like to start our debut spotlight episodes by asking what your experience has been like in in the lead up to the publication of your debut novel. And I would also love to know, did you always want to go into fiction? Um, No, to answer that last question, I um, actually didn't really consider it until a few years ago. When I had this idea, I'd always loved books and I've always read and I've always spent a lot of time in my imagination, but I got into journalism and I love that. And I love writing about architecture and, and design and art, which is what I mostly do now. And I always admired people who wrote books because it seemed like such a huge undertaking, especially, you know, as a journalist, you, you work on a story, you submit it, and then you generally don't think about it again. They're Maybe some stories that, you know, have particular weight, but usually, you know, things move so fast that you're writing so much that, you know, you move on to the next topic, the next interview and things like that. Whereas with a book, you're really sitting with these characters in this story for a really long period of time. And that was like using a different creative muscle for me. I did really love that with fiction, you know, if you kind of find yourself in a creative hole, you can just make it up and imagine your way out of it. Whereas journalism, you're tied to facts and rightly <laughs> so and quotes that people have said. Whereas, you know, sometimes you'll do an interview and someone hasn't said something enough in an articulate enough way that you could use that as a direct quote. Whereas, you know, in my book, I could just be like, well, I'll write that quote for them. So <laughs> if it was a challenge, but an interesting one. And I like 
the fact that they do use two different parts of the brain because I think that similar to fiction and nonfiction, it kind of keeps you nimble in that way. Probably. And what was the the inspiration for for this book? I would I'd love to hear you talk about about it. Yeah. So it came from the fact that ever since I was a kid, I'd had quite a lot of anxiety around death. And I think that's because, you know, in Western society, we don't talk about it a lot. Um, there were some deaths in my extended family quite when I was quite young. So I became very aware of it very young. And I think the fear kind of just compounded and I didn't really talk about it. And then I got to my 30s and I was like, wow, you know, I still have this quite present anxiety about it. But I've always been someone who, when I scared of something I make myself do it and until I'm not so you know scared of heights you know jumping off a high diving board or you know scared of snakes you know going to a a park and holding a snake so I was like well maybe instead of avoiding everything to do with death I could get a little bit curious about it and when you live in New York you can really go down a rabbit hole of anything and so I happened to find the rabbit hole of things relating to death and mortality which sounds creepy but it was actually fascinating and so I started going to like talk from people who worked in hospices and lectures on stoicism because the stoics were very preoccupied with death and mortality and I went to things like they're called message circles but they're kind of like seances and you know just started like listening to podcasts and reading articles and and just trying to do things that I would normally not do Uh, and I learned so much from that and it really did help kind of normalize it for me and that's when I came across the concept of a death doula and I thought wow who would do that you know dedicate your professional life to watching people die like what a noble thing to do and then that made me think well what would compel someone to choose that career and that's when the character of Clover came about and then I thought well maybe I could take all of this stuff that I've learned and put it into a story that was joyful and uplifting so that the topic was palatable for someone like me who wouldn't normally read a book about death because they have these anxieties and so hopefully that's what the end of res- the end result does it really does and the the book itself it is about death and it does handle the, these kind of deeper topics and it's i think it's a subject that our bookends listening will know that i personally find very fascinating i will i will talk to people about death until they themselves die or boredom <laughs> but it was so refreshing to to get my hands on a book that really does it right, that really tackles that, first of all, the fascination that some of us have with death and the dying process and things that surround it, it it deals with that fantastically. But also as well, like you were talking about that fear that a lot of people have about talking about death, about discussing what happens, you know, people say like passing away or these weird kind of euphemisms for, um, for death itself. Can you tell us a bit more about why you wanted the book specifically to be about death itself? Or was was it just kind of you were just so interested in all these things you did just want to just put it all in one place and then this story just evolved from it? I think it was partly to explore my own anxiety. So when I wrote it, I wasn't initially thinking I'm going to write this book to get published. I was just thinking I'm going to write this to explore where this came from and, you know, why I feel this way. And so... I think that was the original driving factor. And then kind of once I had a book, I was like, oh, wow, you know, I set myself this challenge of writing an uplifting book about death for people like me. So maybe 
it could help people like me. So that was really, I think, why it was so important to to have this central theme about death. And it just was like, I was like, you know, it's the thing we all have in common and we don't talk about it. And that's kind of ridiculous. And it just makes it harder. The fact that we don't talk about it until it's right on our doorstep. And so if I could somehow contribute to the conversation in that way or, you know, create something that make people talk to their loved ones about it or something like that, or even just, you know, get that kind of little seed of thought of looking back on your life and, and knowing you've lived it well. And the the sad thing is most people don't look back on their lives until the end and it's too late to do anything. So I hope that through this book, people might stop and, and take stock and think, okay, well, you know, I still have time and you, no one knows how much time they have, but you've got the chance now to, to take a little small piece of action. I think it's wonderful that you've, you've explored this topic. And I think you're so right. Like it is something that, that we don't speak about enough. And as Lydia said, she's very, she's got this borderline weird obsession with, with death and the whole process of it. Um, she's very open to discussing it and I'm sort of similar to I'm not sure if writing this book has changed your perception of it I'm sure it has but I'm um, very similar in the way that I feel very anxious about death and it's so strange because it's as you said it's in that that we will all experience but when we're confronted with like our own mortality like it's just it is it is anxiety inducing and I especially found that during the pandemic you know the more it, it became more of a global conversation because because so many people died during that time. Um, am I right in thinking that you were writing this during the pandemic? Yeah, so I'd had the idea before the pandemic okay. um, and just kind of because I'd never written a book before, wasn't really, you know, hadn't put pen to paper. And then um, when it was locked down here in New York, I was kind of like, well, you know, I live alone. I didn't really have much to do. So I was like, well, I guess I could write this. And it was a really odd time to be writing a book about death because in that really early stage when New York was one of the epicenters of the pandemic and it was just ambulances all day and night kind of going by so you would hear the sirens you'd be woken up by the sirens um and you know I'd see neighbors being stretched into ambulances and I'd ride my bike around the empty city and you ride past the hospitals and they had the morgue trucks outside and so Mm. it was really so present and for me as someone who had anxiety around and I did think oh well you know can I do this and you know because this is not only being deep in the the topic fictionally, but it's actually happening around me. But then I thought, well, you know, it's happening to these people. Almost everybody's affected by it and has, you know, lost someone or known someone at, at least here. And so I thought, well, you know, that's the whole point is that you can't look away or you shouldn't look away. You know, it's really important to bear witness to this because it is the reality for a, a lot of people in the world right now. And that made me realize that it was even more important to write something that could explore the topic in a way that was accessible to more people. Yeah, definitely. How do you feel that like writing this during the pandemic, like how do you feel it impacted like the way that you wrote about death? I did. I didn't want to put the actual pandemic in there because I, you know, I think it's a universal topic with or without what happened with the pandemic. I think as a result of the pandemic, a lot of people were coming to terms with what their relationship to death was and the anxiety and things like that. So I really tried to present different perspectives of 
how people relate to it. So for example, for Clover, it's, you know, she knows it so well and it's a topic that's almost like that's the one thing in life she knows really well. And so she's comfortable around it. But there's another character, Sebastian, who, you know, he has a, quite an intense fear of it. And that came from, you know, being raised religious and things like that. And and so he talks about his relationship with it. And then, you know, there's the patient patients who are actually very close to death and their relation to it. So I really wanted to show there are many different perspectives and people have many different relationships with it. And, you know, they're all the right relationship. You know, it's not, there's not one way to have it. And, and just kind of hopefully when people read it, they can see themselves in one of the characters and relate to them in some way and maybe think about how that influences their own relationship with death. Yeah. I really love stories and, and novels that have like multiple perspectives. So I really liked that your novels kind of populated with all these these wonderful different characters and are so diverse. And like you said, they've all got their own stories and their own experiences with death. But I think I have to talk about Clover, obviously your your protagonist, and she's such a unique character. And I and I really feel like if if Lydia could choose a handful of fictional characters to sit for dinner with, she would be one of them. <laughs> Correct. When we're talking about, oh, there'll be one person you identify with, I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> I was like, it's me. <laughs> but she, you know, she obviously grew up being this total outcast and, you know, she doesn't have many friends growing up. She, I am going to be wary of spoilers, but, you know, she doesn't have many family members and, you know, she's she's also reluctant to, to date and to explore friendships in, in her adult life. So I really want to know what was the inspiration for Clover. Yeah, so when I had the idea, basically I had the idea that she would be a deaf doula and that she would collect people's last words in these three notebooks, confessions and vice regrets. And then I was like, well, what is she going to do for 90,000 words? <laughs> <laughs> so then I thought, well, I really love coming of age stories. And I also don't think, I think you can come of age at any age because for many different reasons, people don't have the chance to until later in life a lot of the time. She's 36, but it often happens even later. And so I thought, oh, that would be a really nice journey to take her on. And then I've lived in New York 10 years and I've also lived in Paris and Barcelona. And what really struck me about these big cities is that there's millions of people, but almost half of those, I think the statistics say, are lonely. And it's so fascinating that we can be in such close proximity to people and yet not know how to connect with them. Um, and in New York, you know, I've met some, a lot of people that would have, you know, through work and, and volunteering and things like that, people who would be considered weirdos or outcasts, but they're actually like really funny, warm, empathetic people, but they've been put in this box by society or even by themselves that they can't really break out of. And so, you know, when the chance to have that social connection comes, they, they kind of freeze up. And I think a lot of the time in books, loner characters are are depicted as misanthropes or just, you know, people that hate people and don't want to be around them. But I think there's so many people who are loners kind of out of circumstance and then they really want to connect with people and they have the capacity to, but they either don't have the opportunity because society has branded them this one way or, as I said, they kind of freeze up when that opportunity comes. And I think they've been rejected so many times that they they build up this wall and that keeps them safe. But 
then that stops them from the vulnerability that's needed in order to have um, fulfilling relationships. I love what you said about um, you feel like people can come of age at any age because I think that's so true. And you definitely got a sense of how like she she evolves so much as a character. And yeah, I just I think it's quite clear how much me and Lydia love her. So <laughs> yeah, I think like as not necessarily in Clover's case, but for example, someone who becomes a parent really young and then maybe ends up being like a single mother or something, they don't get the chance to spend any time on themselves, any introspection, anything like that, because they're caretaking for the next 20 years. And so they say if they became a mother at you know, 20, then that, so they might not get until 40 to, to really have that time to breathe and think for themselves. And I think those are really interesting coming of age stories. And initially I had her a little bit younger at 33, but I was talking with my agent and we decided it is a a lot more interesting for someone to be 36 and, and not really have had many friendships or any relationships romantically. And I think there are actually a lot of people in that situation. And I've had readers reach out to me on Instagram and say, I am Clover, like you totally got me. And I really wanted, which was surprising and, and amazing, but I really wanted those people to to kind of be represented in fiction to know that even if that is their, their reality, there's nothing wrong with that. And if they do enjoy a solitary life, then that is great. You know, if it makes them happy, then great. That doesn't make them a weirdo just because they don't do things the same way as everybody else. Absolutely. And I think it's just, it's so refreshing to get a book that represents those people and to get a book that kind of tells the narrative in a in a really unexpected way. Like I had no idea what this book was about when I opened it. I just, uh-huh. I, I mean, Hannah knows this. I'm not a blurb reader. I don't like to read anything. Mm-hmm. Um, she just goes, this is a really good book. And I'm like, okay, I just read it. <laughs> and it honestly, it was so surprising. And I mean, I finished reading this book. We talk about public dreams, but I finished reading this book on a bus. And um, I have a bone to pick with you because it was embarrassing. <laughs> because I was crying on a bus in front of everybody. <laughs> so guys, if you are going to read this book, this is a warning now to not finish it on a mode of public transport <laughs> or in a public place. <laughs> because you write with such this kind of poignancy and this empathy for your characters and, and things like grief are explored with like such deft skill and y- you really spoke to me on a personal level and I think you're going to speak to a lot of people when they read it. I have one quote that really just absolutely, this is again another reason why I was crying on the bus. Okay. And it's, um, grief is just love looking for a place to settle, which is just, I mean, you know, I get it. Everyone's going to have a tear in their eye. What do you think it is about grief that compels us to read and write about it? Yeah, what's interesting is that initially I didn't have as much of the grief aspect in there and that is um to your question about the pandemic that's one thing that I did kind of change as a result of that because I was just like wow there's in addition to the normal amount of grieving there's going to be substantially more in the next few years and I'd watched quite a few of my friends grieving loved ones in the past years and I'd lost um, some friends myself but it was so interesting to me the way other people treat people who are grieving and 
I was reading about it and I learned that in Western society, well, at least in the United States, if someone is still really grieving heavily after six months, it's um, diagnosed as chronic grief. And then they often recommend medication, which to me, that just sounded ridiculous because, you know, if you've loved someone, you you need a lot longer than six months to, to get over them. And you're probably never going to get over them because you love them. And and that's the grief is representative of that love as that quote implies. And I think we really need to shift our relationship to grief, you know, in terms of there being a timeline, there isn't a timeline. Everybody has their own time that they take to work through it. But, you know, it's not a finite thing. It's, it's something that will stay with you forever. I think also, you know, there's a lot of talk about the stages of grief, which I think confuses people when they're grieving if they're not going through those stages or in the right order which I think everybody's grief is their own and that's what we need to to recognize is that as much as you want to help someone you know the way they grieve is really entirely up to them and how long it takes to work through things and also just noticing how a lot of people are uncomfortable around grief and you know they kind of stop reaching out or they don't know what to say and things like that. And I think that's because it reminds them of their own mortality. So I can understand it. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, really being willing to look people's pain in the eye is so important. And I really wanted to show that and, and to show people who are grieving that what they're feeling is normal and, you know, that they don't have to get over it and they don't have to process it in the same way that someone else does. Really, you know, it belongs to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think it's so it's so great, especially the way that Clover deals with with her clients in terms and and their families in terms of kind of the practicalities of death and grief and and the advice that she gives I think if you are a person that struggles with knowing what to say or what to do sometimes just just having reading a book like this can give you that perspective of like oh right so I don't need to actually do anything like I can just I can just go and just sit and we can just not say anything for a bit and let them but I'm there and you know there are there are so many things I know that in my own journey with with grief it's been very much about you know not not being able to ask for help and yet people just turning up and showing up and being there and I think that a lot of people really don't understand that's a key way to help yeah. someone it's just your presence just kind of being like okay yeah. let's just do this together and there are really really great moments in the book that demonstrate how you can be one of those people that just show up and there is very little you need to do to be able to to exactly. do it so thank you for writing this amazing manual on how to deal with stuff <laughs> well it actually you know I learned so much from writing it as well and researching those things because because I, you know, had been in those situations where I didn't know what to say, whether it's with someone who's grieving or someone who is dying. And so I feel like the book really equipped me. I feel like I could be with friends and family in those situations. Now. And as you say, the the most surprising thing to me was learning that, you know, I, as humans, we have this compulsion to say the right thing because we want to help and we want to fix people but knowing that the right thing actually doesn't exist because it could be different on different days um, mm-hmm. what might be helpful to one person is not necessarily helpful to the other so when you acknowledge that it really takes the pressure off you know like you know and just saying something or you know just being there sitting with someone you know playing a game with them talking through like there's so many things you can do that are really meaningful and if, if you resist that urge to fix 
or make them focus on the positive, it's going to be much more beneficial to them. And one thing I did learn, which was super helpful to me, was for someone in that situation, you can say, um, okay, what do you need today? Do you need a, a cheerleader? Do you want to talk about how much this sucks? Or do you just want someone to listen and you're empowering them to, to let you know what they need and, and their answer could be different depending on the day, but you're kind of adapting to the situation rather than just be like, let's focus on the positive and what a great life you've had, even though you're dealing with this horrible thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I cannot recommend it enough. Honestly, it's just, it's brilliant. So thank you. Thank you. You might be Lydia's new favorite person. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Try not to fangirl over here. <laughs> I really want to speak about the, the setting of the novel, which you've obviously touched on a couple of times so far, but your novel is set in New York and it is one of my all-time favourite cities. And you've you've obviously lived in, in so many different places and you've also travelled quite a lot from, from what I've read. I wanted to know why did you feel that it was important to set this specific story in New York? Or why New York specifically? <laughs> yeah, there was a specific reason. Um, and that was not just because I live here. It was because looking at it from the perspective of a reader who wouldn't normally read this kind of book. And I'm asking them to, you know, deal with some really difficult topics and questions throughout it. So it was really important for me to give the reader familiar things to hold on to. So like in New York, even if you've never been there, you know it through movies, you know it through pop culture and especially the West Village. And so I said it there so that, and all of these, and she goes to a lot of different well-known places around New York, because as the reader's kind of fumbling through the discomfort they might feel with the topics, they've got this like warm, cozy feeling that comes from New York. And so it was really something like having an old friend along with you as you kind of are going through this unfamiliar journey. And that was actually the same reason why I had her um, have her obsession with romantic comedies from the 90s, because, you know, even if you haven't seen those movies or you don't like them people know them like yes. you know pretty woman and things like that and so that's another familiarity that you know by having her watch these it's kind of like oh yeah she's just kind of like everybody else who binge watches TV so I tried to put in those little touchstones that that could keep the reader grounded I very much appreciated the Nancy's <laughs> romantic comedy <laughs> I just loved because I'm just so I wish that I could go and live in New York for a little bit I just don't see it happening anytime soon unless I would be blessed with a big acting job out there I just love it so much so I was I was really enjoying getting to sort of live vicariously through Clover <laughs> and you know getting to see how she ran around New York and she you know would get the subway and she'd go into the bookstores and I very much romanticized the idea of a life <laughs> yeah so I, I really enjoyed that and I also really loved her curiosity for her neighbours and I thought that was very New York in the and how I could imagine the the building situation and the fact that she could see into other people's buildings opposite and see into like a little window into their life and curiosity towards them and I felt like that was just very New York it is yeah so I just I really appreciate that and I, I did wonder if if that that curiosity from Clover for her neighbours I wondered if that stemmed from the fact that you were writing this during the pandemic at all because I became more curious about my neighbours during that time but I don't know if there was a link there no I wouldn't say I'm always like I that's what I love about big cities you know for example in Barcelona I loved walking down the alleyways and people would have their doors open and you could see into the 
their houses and it's kind of the same here at night you can see into everybody's houses when you're walking past or across the street and I just love that because it's like you get this little taste of someone's life and not in a voyeuristic way though I'm sure some people do enjoy that more like this little the same as the laughter or the conversation or you see this little vignette going on and and that's such a beautiful thing about cities that when you're in you know a smaller town or in places that houses are spaced out you don't really get that and surprisingly I never would have expected it when I moved here but New York is the place where I've gotten to know my neighbors best and a lot of my best friends now are people who are my neighbors on in New York or people who I let in the who I met in the laundry room of our building um you know I live in a brownstone now and there's four apartments and we all are on the same text chain you know keeping an eye out for packages and helping each other out and and that's a really nice community have which I never would have expected to have in New York City. I love that. I really wish that I feel like where where I live and I don't know if it's if it's just a UK thing but I feel like the way my nana talks about like how my grandparents speak about how they were with their neighbours when they were younger and when they were like new to their like street like they were they were so involved in like their the neighbours that it was a really community a proper community feel but I feel like that's kind of missing now and I feel like yeah. the pandemic probably encouraged people to get involved with their neighbours a little bit more but yeah. yeah, I um, I really enjoyed Clover's curiosity of her neighbours because I'm always very curious about what my neighbours are doing. Yeah, and just people in general are fascinating yeah. and like creating stories or trying to guess what they are and things like that. I think it's so, and in her case, I think we do tend to sometimes create these wild narratives about people and you meet them and you're like, oh, wait, that was not it at all. But it is kind of a really fun aspect of living in cities. Like say sitting on the subway, you know, looking at everybody, yeah. trying to think about what their story is or why they're wearing a certain thing or doing a certain thing and it's just so interesting yeah I mean this won't surprise you Mickey but I am the type of neighbor like I would like to nod at you yeah I'll acknowledge the nod and then I would like to have nothing to do with you for the rest of your life if that's okay So uh, I identified with Clover very, yes, very yeah. much. And that the creeping down the stairs and you know that the person is in. Yeah. That was also something that I built. Um, and and this is one of the things. Clover is a very she's a very wonderful person, but she she is quite a lonely soul. I think feel like she's quite a loner at heart. And her self isolation, because most I, I think a lot of it is her isolating herself, cutting her off from, you know, so much in the world that she could enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book we do see her begin and again no spoilers but we see her begin to branch out and build more meaningful relationships particularly with a number of characters how important for Clover was it to start developing these connections as the narrative went on? Yeah, I think that is the main, that's the driving force of it. And what I really wanted to show is in a lot of cases with these lonely people, or even like with everybody, sometimes we don't realize how loved we actually are because people express love and care in different ways. And sometimes in, you know, certain cultures, we're not very forthright about it. And so it's easy to feel like you're unloved and disconnected when really, you know, there's people kind of watching you from afar or you know, who are in your periphery who do really care about you and so each of those characters that you spoke about are kind of slowly trying to draw Clover out of this this shell that she's 
gotten so comfortable in and in their own way they're all very different characters but they all have this kind of shared goal of helping her you know she is a wonderful person and and curious and adventurous and and empathetic and it would be great for her to to share that with the world so I think it's really and I think that's a scary thing to let people pull you out because that's such a vulnerable thing and when you've gotten so used to your own company and your solitude which a lot of people are you know the the idea of putting yourself out there for potential rejection and for these challenges that come with being social that's terrifying but as one of the characters makes the point you know that's what living life is it is kind of putting your heart out there and letting it get broken and and making mistakes and things because that's how you grow and that's the the essence of being human so profound oh i'm so sad that i've finished this book <laughs> you know as sad as I was on a bus crying let me tell you I, I finished this at 1am and I <laughs> I had work this morning and I was like no I need to I need to stay up <laughs> so I just, I just loved it so much but there is one character that I really want to talk to you about and that is am I going to say her name right Claudia yeah Yes, Claudia is just a, just a wonderful person that if I could have dinner with a fictional character, she would be one of them. She's just so great and she's just such a free spirit and just, just a gorgeous person. And I loved, I loved reading about her and I loved the way that she spoke about, about her career. And I have, to, I have got a quote because we like to read people's own books back to them. So this is her talking about when she's photographing people. She's had a career as a photojournalist, just for our listeners to know. So she says, engaging people helps them let their guard down and be vulnerable to feel, to express themselves. And that's what photography is all about, making people feel seen. Of course, we look at people every day, but we rarely stop to really see them for who they are. And just that that just sums up why I love her so much and just like you were saying then about people wanting to be seen and I just love that quote so much but why do you think that Claudia had such a powerful impact on Clover? I think uh, partly you know she'd never really had that female role model because she lost her parents young I don't think that's a spoiler because it happened so early in the book and she was raised by her grandfather who you know did his best but he could only do so much and so she'd never really had any female to look up to and so seeing Claudia's kind of vivacious free-spirited approach to life was really an eye-opener to her and just her willingness to to live kind of fully but then her regrets and the fact that she limited herself in in certain ways and I think she is kind of a a mother figure in the end for Clover because she's someone who's cared for her and that she has this connection with and is is giving this advice and I think that's so unfamiliar to Clover that she you know it takes her a while to to open up to it but it's it's so beneficial when she does yeah that and I think that's what Clover's really looking for I mean the whole way through the book she's just looking for a connection with someone that's going to be meaningful that's going to open up something for her and she she can't do that by herself she she can't make that by herself and I think it's so wonderful when Claudia comes into her life and she's just like oh here it is yeah <laughs> yeah there it is that, that thing I've been looking for <laughs> exactly and like this is an example of how you could live your life and I think yeah. that's really inspiring for her yeah I feel like it really gives Clover the sort of permission she didn't know she was looking for to Mm -hmm. to just kind of go for it in terms 
terms of lots of things. I'm not going to elaborate on that because I don't want to (laughs) it. No, but that's true. Actually, I'm a theory that everybody has some kind of dream or thing they want to do and they just need permission. And so often, um, you know, when I'm traveling, because you always meet people and you'll get in conversation and it'll often come up that they have this thing that they they've always wanted to do and I always make a point of saying well you should do it now because I think if you need someone to give you that permission but also it helps if they're like a mysterious stranger who then like they turn around and you're gone like like, from the universe like sometimes I've done that and be like well I've got to go (laughs) but I think it's true the same as you say we're all looking for connection we're all you know sometimes just need someone to encourage us to take that leap and so I try to do that and for people as often as I can goodness I need you in my life like on a daily basis <laughs> just like wake up to you know you can yeah. do it I'll be like okay, okay. Like, today's the day you should have that thing you can do it yeah <laughs> So finally, I have to mention Sebastian, who is such a wonderful character and brings so much to Clover's life and the story in itself. Can you tell us a bit more about what you wanted to bring to the book by including him? Yeah, so I definitely didn't want the book to be like a romance. And I think anybody who comes to it thinking it is a romance will be quite... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that was another one of those things like to count to the the harder themes to you know have this thing that gives you a little bit of hope and you know the idea of over kind of dumbling through the dating world was I think really endearing but with him I wanted to show you know it is it's not kind of love at first sight and it's not you know you are kind of like ah this is really awkward and and you know not to spoil anything but things don't go in the way that she's always envisioned based on her compulsive watching of romantic comedies and I really wanted to show that because that is actually the reality of dating and you know sometimes you don't feel that connection immediately and sometimes you do find them like these little things that bother you and often people will talk themselves into a relationship and that's not always a good thing maybe you know it is important to have those sparks so I wanted to really present this kind of more realistic version of of what it means to date and and get to know someone and I think he's so different from her but he you know pursues her quite enthusiastically and, and that as someone who's avoidant makes her you know retreat but I think what's great is that he's persistent and that does mm-hmm. help draw her out and I think as you say that is we need those people in our lives sometimes absolutely He's like a really great representation of even if when you're going through dating, even if that person isn't, you know, like the great love, yeah, every relationship is going to propel you forward in some way and teach you something about yourself. And I thought he was a great example of that. No, I agree. And um, I think, you know, we're often given this knight in shining armor. And, you know, I think it's interesting to have someone who has allergies and, you know, <laughs> weird smells and like has these things because I think, especially as women, we can build up these perfections, this like yeah. idea of perfection in a man, which doesn't probably exist. And I think kind of realizing that and finding other charm to to kind of focus on is a much healthier way to today. And he's also kind of an amalgamation of several guys that I've dated in New York City because it is a very oh interesting place to go on date. It's um, the, it, it's the uh, I'm allergic to dogs and Chloe's got a dog and I was like, ah! Yeah, came over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Deal breaker. <laughs> and then it's like, oh no, it's actually really nice. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> don't rule him out because he's allowed yeah. to the world. Exactly. <laughs> but that's a really important thing if you love dogs. So yeah. it's like the fatal flaw. <laughs> it was the books as well for me when he was just like, yeah, not, not massively into books. Not big reader. Yeah. Not big reader. And yeah. I mean, I say but, that, but my, my own boyfriend of five years is not a big reader. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, I think, it, you know, it's sometimes opposites do work better because yeah. they're compliments rather than two people of the same. I don't think I would like to date the male version of me. I think that would be. My gosh, could you imagine? Yeah. Oh, my final question for you, Mickey, is obviously through writing this book, you have, I'm assuming, had to contemplate life and death and the meaning of it all. And I would love to know, you know, what have you learned through exploring these topics in such great detail? Like, is there anything that, that you want to share that specifically stands out to you? Yeah, well, aside from what I said earlier about learning how to be with people in those situations, which like, you know, I don't think I could be a death doula, but I know now that I could really be there for loved ones when they're going through these things. But what I learned, it definitely did make me overcome my anxiety because I learned where it came from. And what I realized was, you know, part of the fear was the fear of losing my loved ones without having saved the time with them or had the conversations I really wanted to have with them or, or, or tell them how I really felt. And so with my mom in particular, and so I um, said to her one day, you know, I really want to get to know you, not just as my mom, but as a human. And I want to, I want to ask you all these questions. And some of them are quite personal, you know, is that okay? And you can do the same for me. And she was really open to it. And so, you know, I recorded the conversations and I really got to know, you know, so many things I'd never known about her and, you know, challenging parts of her life. And, and so that really deepened our relationship. And then, you know, we talk on Skype every week. And so I asked if it was okay if I could record the calls and that wasn't necessarily I wasn't you know asking her these deep questions often it's just you know what we did that week or at the moment she's obsessed with sourdough <laughs> it's an update on her sourdough starter but you know that it seems kind of just mundane now but when she's gone having you know, now I have three years worth of weekly phone calls recorded so and that's what I kind of learned through the research is that one of the things when they lose someone that people miss most is the sound of their voice and often they don't have a sample of it you know they have that one voicemail that they play over and over because it's the only example of their voice and I thought what an amazing thing to have just my mom telling me what she did that day or giving me an inventory of what's in her garden so that really changed my relationship with my mom and with my friends and close loved ones in general you know really I make make a point to tell people how much I love them or appreciate them or when I've enjoyed something and I was very much a you know future tripper like always thinking about what's happening next and you know things like that and so I feel like now I've learned to really stay in the present and and savor something rather than you know I'm having a great time with friends but thinking about the things I need to do when I get home and just really staying in that moment and reminding myself that I don't know how many more of them I get so you know mm -hmm. really treasure the ones that I do get and I think we're constantly given reminders of that when people do die suddenly or tragically and often young like you just really never know and so you know make the most of it while you can an incredibly important life lesson from you I I really appreciate that and I think it's especially important when we're living in an age where we're constantly on our phones as you said earlier and we're you know, spending so much time online, you know, it's really important to be conscious of that and to be conscious about staying present with our loved ones because, mm -hmm. you know, like you said, we're not going to, they're not going to be around forever. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to to realise how precious they are. So yeah, thank you so much for, for, 
that lovely advice you give us and for writing this incredible book that I'm sure Lydia is going to be pushing into the hands of everybody Thank in the bookshop she works <laughs> I work in a bookshop. It's, it's not just my job, but my personal, personal goal to get this into as many people's hands as possible. Thank you. I appreciate that. Without coming across weird and talking to them about right. death, I'll have yeah. to remember that. <laughs> Can we squeeze a recommendation out of you before we let you go? Yeah, definitely. Anything at all, books, TV, films, podcasts, whatever. Yes. So I'll give you two. One was a book I read recently called Vladimir by Julia May Jonas. So we love when... it. We love it. It's such an original protagonist. Yes. And I love just the fine line of like, she's kind of horrible, but I love her and I really want her to succeed. I think yeah. it's just such an original book. And then just recently, I also saw the movie Past Lives. It's a Korean film and it's really, it's about these, a guy and a girl who were best friends in Korea. And then the girl moved to the United States when they were 12 and they kind of reconnect throughout their life. And it's about, you know, what could have been and things like that. And it's just a beautiful very simple film that i highly recommend i am adding that to my watch list yeah like that sounds so good mickey it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today so thank you so much for coming on but i'm sure our listeners will want to hear more from you so is there anywhere they can find you online yes the best place is on instagram and it's just at mickey brammer i'm also on twitter but less frequently so for the real kind of insights and updates i would say mostly instagram amazing and I also hear that you have a second book that you're working on. So I'm I'm sure we're we're gonna hear about that soon, maybe. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, it's still in the work, but I mean, it's well on the way. Oh, I'm very, very excited and I know that Lydia is her face just bolted. Fake fake So listeners, the, the Collected Regrets of Clover is um published in the UK on the sixth of July. So it'll be out now by the time this episode goes out. And it is when is it out in the US? Is it it's already out here. It's yeah. already out in the US. Perfect. So our US lucky listeners, um well, I'm sure they're already getting their hands on a copy, but yeah. we pop in links in the show notes to to buy yourselves a copy. And please go give Mickey a follow. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so that we can reach more listeners. And if you would like to follow us, you can do so at A Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram and at A Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. But finally, Mickey, thank you so, so much. I have thank loved you. having you on. Uh, Lydia is slightly in love with you. I can tell by her eyes. Uh, there's no slightly. There's no slightly. Thank you. Oh, the feelings mutual, Lydia. I just do love you. There you go. Hey, listen, time's short. Time's yeah. short. So exactly. I love you. <laughs> thank you. And thank you both for asking such wonderful questions and for taking the time to support debut authors. And thank you to everyone who's listening for your time. I know it's precious. Yes, thank you. And bye. Goodbye. See ya.